and welcome to Behind the Glass Cabinet, a podcast where I, Ellie Armstrong, explore how science is constructed and displayed in museums. Each week, I'll be joined by a co-host for a conversation about a particular item you can go and see in a London museum. Together, we'll challenge, dissect and celebrate the stories the artefact could tell. My name's Alice Proctor. I am an art historian and museum educator. I run a project called Uncomfortable Art Tours, which looks at colonial history and the way that it's represented in museums and art galleries. And I work a lot on kind of creating the idea of unfamiliar places and what it means to be an explorer going and discovering something new. Fantastic. And which object are we going to be discussing today? We're going to be talking about a platypus. <gasps> oh my goodness. It's, What's a platypus? Uh, it is a semi-aquatic egg-laying mammal. Wow. Um, <laughs> very very unusual. They are super weird. Yeah. It's, so it is a monotreme. Uh, what is a monotreme? Essentially, platypuses are mammals in that they produce milk, but they also lay eggs. So there are only uh, five uh, monotremes, which are egg-laying mammals, that exist in the world at the moment. There are four different types of echidna and the platypus. Excellent. And we know that historically there were other kinds, but they are now all extinct or evolved into something different. Um, And platypuses, or apparently the plural is actually platypodes, Nice. Good. I'm glad we clarified uh, that. We, I, I looked it up just for you. <laughs> the platypodes uh, lay eggs, mm-hmm. but when their babies hatch from the eggs, they are so tiny. So you can see footage of a newly hatched platypus and it's just like a tiny little pink. They're the size of a jelly bean <gasps> and they just kind of like wriggle around and don't really do anything. And then they live in a pouch. Okay in the parent's body and the inside of the pouch uh, sweats milk. Okay. So it's not like they don't have nipples. Okay. They just kind of, they just kind of like sweat milk. Cool. And the baby platypus will eat that until it is old enough to kind of like mature and enter into the world. But by four months, they're roughly adult size. Okay. So they mature very, very fast. Okay. But like many Australian uh, marsupials and mammals and things like that, they have pouches. Okay. Uh, it's really weird. Yeah, it's they, are the, they are the weirdest creatures. And so this this object that we're talking yes. about is in the British Museum. Yeah, it's a stuffed platypus okay. uh, in the British Museum. It dates from around 1800 and it is included kind of weirdly in the Enlightenment Gallery of the British Museum. Mm-hmm. So nowadays we don't think of the British Museum as a natural history space at all. It's very much a space for like objects and art and sort of representing culture with things. Um, but in the early days, it included a natural history collection. Okay. The first uh, British museum was mostly the private collection of a man called Sir Hans Sloane, who collected plants and coins and a bunch of other stuff. And so his collection is very kind of chaotic and irregular. And so if you go into the Enlightenment Gallery in the British Museum, it is room one of the museum, and it is kind of a history of, of the history of the space. Mm-hmm. And so... Down in the kind of, I think, the far south end of the gallery is the natural history aspect of the museum. So it's all about what used to be there before the uh, Natural History Museum split off and became its own institution. Yeah, I was going to say, because that's what happens to that collection, right? It yes, yeah. the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. Yes. Okay. So so they are originally the same thing, and then it separates out. Okay. Um, but they retain the platypus. Well, so... What they actually do is that it all goes to the Natural History Museum. And then in 2003, when they decide they want to create this Enlightenment Gallery, which is a history of the British Museum, they borrow a bunch of stuff back from the Natural History Museum. So this platypus is actually in the collection of the Natural History Museum. 
but it's on show in the British Museum. Okay. And there are a bunch of other like uh, taxidermied specimens and illustrations of plants and flora, fauna kind of thing that are borrowed back as part of that. Okay. And this space in the British Museum, if you've not been, is, mm. is uh, it looks like a library. So it's it's got books and it's got little displays of different sets of paraphernalia. Yeah. So historically, the space was actually the library. Okay. Uh, it was the storage room for the King's Library, which is now that kind of big central column in the British Library. Mm-hmm. Uh, all used to be in room one of the British Museum. So that space was never actually used for displaying objects. It was always just a room full of books and librarians, and it was never like a public display space. Mm -hmm. But then in 2003, the museum decided that they wanted to create this Enlightenment gallery. And the idea is that it tells you the story of kind of collecting and what the museum has been through its different stages of life. It focuses on a few of the kind of specialist collectors from its early history. Um, So there's a bit of information on people like uh, Lord Elgin and William Hamilton, as well as Joseph Banks Mm -hmm. and a few others. And so they kind of created this weird fantasy of what the museum might have looked like in a room that was never actually used for the display of objects. And so all of the display furniture in the room looks 18th century but it's 15 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I really thought all that stuff was older. So the walls are older, but they've been refurbished okay. and the cases in the middle of the room are modern. Oh, interesting. It's okay. super weird. Yeah. So so we're in a space where we're constructing an idea of the past. Yes. And within that construction of the past, we're thinking about how people like Joseph Banks imagined and described places they'd never been to, things they'd never seen, because Joseph Banks didn't go to Australia. No, he did. He did. He was on the first Cook voyage. Okay. So So, he did. Yes, so he did. So he, in uh, 1768, along with a small group of artists and botanists that he had kind of assembled, leaves on the Endeavour, leaves on the first Cook voyage to uh, observe the transit of Venus. Fantastic. And map the South Pacific. So they're going to Tahiti with this kind of overt intention of studying science and astronomy and like understanding the world and Banks kind of buys his way onto the voyage by offering um, botanical artists and natural historians to kind of come with him because he's a hobbyist but he's not actually very qualified okay Um, he's just a rich white man with a lot of time on his hands fair enough so that's what he does he spends three years on a boat just trekking around the south pacific why wouldn't you (laughs) (laughs) and so so he does go on the first voyage he intends to go on the other ones as well, but he's too busy running the British Museum. Okay. And so uh, instead he just sends other natural historians and collectors out kind of with his remit. Okay. So presumably on this first voyage then, he didn't see a platypus. He did not see a okay. platypus. Okay. So he's no. like, well, I didn't see one. So therefore it's not really real. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the first voyage, when it gets to what is now Australia in 1770, they travel up part of the east coast of Australia. So they land in uh, Botany Bay, which is called Gamai in the Gwigal language. Um, the Gwigal are the indigenous people of that region. They also travel up the east coast and spend a bit of time in what is now Queensland. And during that time, you know, they they get wrecked and so they have to spend six weeks repairing the boats. And Banks and his uh, companion artists travel up and down the coast and go inland a little bit, but not very much. Um, observing plants and other specimens and things like that. So Banks does see a bunch of Australian fauna that has never been kind of described by Europeans before. Mm -hmm. One of the things he sees is a kangaroo, um, although there are some suggestions that people might have seen kangaroos as early as the 1600s. Uh, Europeans, that is, obviously. Um, 
like to people, be clear people, people in australia have presumably been seeing kangaroos for, for a, long a long time, time. Okay. to be absolutely clear every time i say anything about discovery or seeing for the first time i'm talking about the europeans there are hundreds of thousands of years of culture in australia australian um traditions and culture have existed since the dreaming and it's impossible to put a time on that. So when I'm talking about these dates and these kind of moments of discovery and mapping and observing, I'm always talking about Europeans and the fact that these Europeans, including banks, don't really draw on Indigenous knowledge at all. Mm -hmm. So they just do things like describe kangaroos and some other natural specimens and things like that. And they try and take uh, skins of as much as they possibly can. So if you've seen the George Stubbs paintings of the kangaroo and the dingo, they are based on skins that are brought back by banks. Because yeah, those are in the National Maritime Museum. They are now, now in the Natural Maritime Museum. Yeah, for a long time they were in private collections. Yeah. Uh, and the National Gallery of Australia tried to buy them a few years ago and the British government put on an export ban <gasps> to prevent them from leaving wow. the country because apparently their historical significance okay. can only be recognised in Britain. Yes. Uh, which Obviously. is a just a thing that I kind of yeah. have some issues with. Yeah. <laughs> But so they're now, if you want to go and see these these drawings, you can go and see them in the New Pacific Gallery. Yes, the yeah, they're Maritime. in the New Pacific Gallery in the National Maritime Museum. So there's this tendency to kind of like take specimens as much as possible. They take drawings where they can. Artists like Sidney Parkinson and Banks' other uh, artists and the other artists of the Cook Voyages are constantly trying to record as much as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. But within these images, we see a really clear process of translation. So the Stubbs paintings are based on inflated skins. They're not based on live specimens. And so consequently, they look really weird. The kangaroo is very kind of coy and sweet looking. And the dingo looks basically like a brown fox. It doesn't look anything like a dingo in its body language or the way that it's moving. Um, and this is a sort of trend that continues through the early colonial period of Australia. So then, like, skipping on 30 years, Banks is a very well-established botanist and museum collector, and he's involved in the running of the British Museum. And someone sends him a platypus. Oh, okay, cool. So, he, like, he's prior to this, has he ever seen a platypus? He has never seen a platypus. Not even drawings? Not even drawings. There are some kind of the first descriptions by Europeans pop up in the 1790s. Okay. And... As part of this kind of process of translation and trying to make it make sense, mm -hmm. they think it's like a beaver or an otter even. Okay. Um, and they can't make sense of the fact that like if you've seen a platypus, which I'm assuming most people have now, yep. they have a bill like a duck. Yep. They have flippers. Apart from that, they look a bit like a beaver kind of otter thing. They're quite small. Mm -hmm. um, and they are semi-aquatic in that they like can swim but also walk on land and they kind of burrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're unable to make sense of the platypus's face mm -hmm. and the fact that it's got like a face like a duck, yeah. but it's not a duck. Yeah. And so they're trying to work out if it's like a furry bird or what is yeah. going on here. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so there are these descriptions that don't actually describe it at all. They're kind of like, oh, yes, I saw a small mammal. And we think that they must be descriptions of a platypus. Yes, because it's, it's it fits quite well into how the, at the time people tried to categorise things like: is it a bird? Is yes. it a mammal? Is it animal, a... mineral, vegetable? Yeah, exactly. But like eighteenth century and official botany edition. Exactly, yeah. and that, like this, this, this sits too much across different different categories that they had constructed based on the European world, and um, so 
they don't really they don't really get mm. this mm-hmm. as a thing, right? No. It doesn't sit equally in those And even when they start to observe it, it has uh some kind of biological features that they associate with birds in that it has, for example, it has a cloaca. Uh, So it it doesn't... Lays eggs. It lays eggs, but it also has milk. And so it takes them a really, really long time to kind of figure out how this should sit. Mm -hmm. And that's why its first name is kind of like bird-faced paradox, because they can't understand it. So there's descriptions start coming back to Europe of the platypus. And one of the earliest is written by a man called David Collins uh, in the late 1790s. He's a diarist of kind of early colonial Australia um, who writes accounts of the foundational years of the colony and they're published. Mm -hmm. And so Banks has kind of read about these things and he doesn't really believe them because he hasn't seen them. And then specimens start traveling to the UK. So from about uh, 1797, people start shipping skins to the UK and the first ones are thought of as hoaxes yeah. because this is the time of everyone's obsessed with like the Fijian mermaid. Everyone's yeah. kind of pulling up all of these fake animals yeah. and everyone looks at the platypus and they're like, this one is one of them. You have made this up. Yeah. This cannot be real. Because yeah. I mean, I love them. I think they're kind of weirdly beautiful, but they are so weird. <laughs> like they're just so strange to look at. And, you know, if that's if you're trying to kind of relate it to it looks like nothing else. Yeah. And so there's no way that you can translate that into something that's familiar. Mm-hmm. And so Banks and all these other natural historians in the UK are like, it's a fake. Don't believe it. It's a fake. Mm-hmm. But they start kind of circulating more and more. And eventually someone sends one to Banks. Yeah. And so this is the one in the Natural History Museum. This is not the one oh. that Banks gets. <gasps> it's so weird. I know. Like, this one's from the 1800s. This in- is this is a contemporary one, yeah. yes. So I don't think this is the one that Banks actually gets. I think that one's been lost. Okay. Because Banks takes the specimen that he receives and kind of pulls it apart mm-hmm. and tries to make sense of it. Okay. But this is one of these early specimens that's sent to the UK. Okay. And so it's really badly taxidermied. Um, <laughs> like the very badly taxidermied. There's one in Cambridge. It's like a very fat hedgehog. Yes. Didn't know yeah. how to stuff it. And there are all these other, so a lot of these early taxidermy platypuses, they'll do things like they'll sit them up on their hind legs, oh, okay. which is not a posture that the platypus would ever take. No. But they're pictured as like crouching like rabbits or something. Okay. And it's really strange. Okay. Whereas the one that is, to, to be clear, the one in the British yes. Museum is lying flat. It's kind of flat on its stomach but its legs are at funny angles and it's kind of weirdly done and they've sort of overstuffed it in places and understuffed it so so we don't really know when it comes back as a skin we don't really understand what it looks like so they try and stuff it to look recognizably like an animal that we might see in europe yes so like a bunny or like an otter absolutely um, to try and help people who maybe see this in the collection these people who go to visit natural collections like Mm. the British Museum so that they have something to relate it to. So not only in terms of like how they describe it, but also how they try and present it in in a in a museum context. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this kind of one of the ways that they'll often do this is that they'll kind of sew them up and then they'll just inflate them and hope for the best. Okay. And so they basically pump them up like a balloon. And we know that's what Stubbs does with his kangaroo. And that's why it's kind of really fat around the bottom, but quite skinny up top in a way that is yeah. like, again, if you've ever looked at a kangaroo, they have really muscular upper bodies and incredible upper body strength. Mm-hmm. But um, his kangaroo is very bottom heavy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine if if they had like maybe taken this like two steps further and thought about what an inflated human would look like, yes. I would understand that these were not what... This is not an accurate representation. <laughs> but um, I mean, you know... At least they at least they're not like looking at it just like as a flat skin. Maybe they're no, making an exactly. effort. They are trying. It's a bad effort, but it's an no, effort. They are absolutely trying. Um, and so Banks kind of finally has to address the fact that this is a real thing. Okay. It exists. Okay. 
and and that kind of reshapes maybe the some of the things that are permissible within this space. Yeah, definitely. So we've already seen this kind of discussion of Australia, and it's not even being called Australia yet. The first uh, use of Australia as a kind of name for the place comes from Matthew Flinders, who circumnavigates Terra Australis, as it's called, mm-hmm. um, in the early 1800s. And he's kind of commissioned by banks to do that, to map the country. Okay and to take as many natural specimens as he possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so we're only just starting to kind of come to terms with the idea of kind of Australia as a continent, as a place. Mm -hmm. Um, The fantasy of this great southern continent exists for a long, long time before Europeans ever go there. Mm -hmm. There is the assumption that comes uh, even in kind of like classical understandings of the world. Um, So I think it's even in Plato, there's this idea that there must be kind of an equal and opposite to Europe. Okay. And so Europe is the great northern continent as it as the world is understood at that time. And so there must be kind of a mirror image of that in the south, okay. that there must, there must be the equivalent and alternative. Mm-hmm. And so when these early Europeans are going to Australia or mapping in the South Pacific, what they are trying to do is find the other half of Europe okay. and trying to find its kind of negative image. Okay. And that really shapes the way that they see the place. Okay. Um, and that shapes presumably also how they view these specimens as being yes. kind of aberrations of the like natural order mm, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often described as kind of like a devil-made continent, right? So it's it's the it's the opposite of everything that makes sense. Okay. In the northern hemisphere, you have you know birds that speak and uh, animals that walk on their hind legs. Yeah, and, and, in, and in a weird way, this this platypus that doesn't fit within like the mammal bird exactly. divide probably like plays into that idea. Um, for botanists and, and yeah, it, it's, historians a, it's a very clear example of like everything that is wrong yeah. with this sort of South Pacific fantasy. Okay, absolutely excellent. And so they, they Joseph Banks like works on this. He's like, mm. oh, cool, look, uh, yeah, actually is a real thing. Yeah, Australia is just as weird as we thought it was going to be. Absolutely. And so, so Banks and others kind of use these specimens to con- it's a confirmation of their biases and their assumptions. And for them, it is a absolute like proof that this place is unfamiliar and impossible. We've already seen the beginnings of um, what comes to be known as Terra Nullius. So from the 16th century on, there's this idea of the doctrine of discovery, which is that if you find a place and no one's obviously in charge, it's a free-for-all and you can just claim it. And when we say no one's obviously in charge, we mean there aren't other European powers who are yes, in charge. Yes, so exactly. We ignore the fact there are people who have lived there and that is... Yeah, absolutely. Power. And so so the understanding is it comes from, I think it comes from a papal bull even, which says that any European prince yeah. uh, is able to claim any other piece of land if it doesn't obviously belong to someone. Okay. And so this is the principle that leads uh, in the 1400s. This is the kind of guiding doctrine that Columbus is using when he discovers the Americas. And obviously none of this is like actual discovery it is all invasion but the theory is that if you can't identify immediately a white person in charge it's a free-for-all okay and so we've already got this understanding that uh amongst the europeans there's already this understanding that australia doesn't kind of follow the rules it's already being treated as this sort of fantasy place it exists in imagination well before anyone goes there and so when they get there and they don't uh see anyone in charge, they don't recognize any kind of human presence mm-hmm. because we know there is human presence, mm-hmm. obviously. Yep. Uh, but there's nothing that they re- relate to or recognize. They take that as permission. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this idea that kind of comes up of terra nullius, which means it comes from a um, 
the idea of uh, the unclaimed thing is just free to take. Like finders keepers is basically the principle of terra nullius, cool. which is it's real bad. Yeah. Um, but it means that we get people like Banks and his contemporaries essentially saying, well, this is ours now. We're doing it. It belongs to us. Yeah. And so what happens with that is that people are trying to map things and trying to get specimens and trying to understand the world as much as possible. And as like a proof that it exists. Exactly, exactly. It's a way of making it tangible. And especially for people back in Europe that keep hearing about this place, Mm -hmm. that they don't know the details. And so Banks is very involved in creating this idea of terra nullius. Uh, So he is really involved in um, advocating for the first Australian penal colony to be established on the basis that, you know, these places that he has seen, there is no obvious habitation Mm. and it would be perfectly appropriate for Europeans. So he suggests uh, Botany Bay, mainly because he named it, because he's the botanist. (laughs) Um, Botany Bay is completely, like, inappropriate as a physical location for the first Australian penal colony. And as soon as uh, the first fleet arrive in Botany Bay, they're like, well, Banks screwed us over. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's talking about. And they have to go up the coast until they get to Port Jackson. But... Banks is really, really keen to be involved in this and he's keen to make it visible to Europeans in a way that he can take credit for. Yeah, and that feeds into this idea of being able to say something about the world and be part of the construction of the narrative about the world. Yeah, so he's not a very well-trained natural historian. Um, (laughs) he, He doesn't have any kind of like real experience. He spent some time in England, you know, dicking around with plants and stuff. Uh, But when he takes part in the first voyage, essentially his qualification is that he has a lot of money and he is able to pay his way. And it seems that Cook is very, very reluctant to have him on board, but he pulls his strings at the Royal Society Mm -hmm. and he makes it happen. So this is interesting that the person constructing these ideas about Australia is not what we might consider to be uh, like a, an excellent scientist no, of the day. No, he's, okay. a, he's a bad scientist. Like he's fundamentally pretty bad at science a lot of the time. And in the descriptions that he makes and things like that, it's pretty clear that he is not anywhere near as much of an expert as he likes to think he is. Yeah. Do you think this plays in like when we when we look forward and the mm-hmm. types of people who are going on future voyages? I mean, obviously, like presumably most most people will be familiar with Darwin as, yes. a, as a botanist on a voyage or a, a scientist on a voyage. Do you think that like kind of after this, people are like, maybe we should send better scientists? I think so. Or I mean, is money still a qualification enough? Money helps. Yeah. So what you get later on is, I mean, there are some really bad explorers, especially in Australia. There are some really bad explorers okay. that don't have any experience, don't have any qualifications and kind of just have money on their side. Often you get rather than personal wealth, you have a powerful patron Mm -hmm. and that really helps. But when we try and construct this first Cook voyage as like a great voyage of scientific discovery and, you know... Especially in light of the transit of Venus and it being like a thing that was done for science. Right. But bearing in mind, Cook is not a scientist. Cook is a fairly low-ranking captain Mm. who gets the job because he's willing to do it. Mm -hmm. Like he has no qualifications. It is the longest voyage he's ever been on. He gets a significant promotion Mm -hmm. in order to be able to lead this voyage. He is chosen because he is loyal Mm -hmm. and he is patient. Mm -hmm. Banks, his main qualification is the fact that he's really rich. None of the sailors, none of the scientists or travelers that really go with this first voyage have proper qualifications. You know, they're generally very inexperienced. Mm -hmm. And then when they get to Tahiti, They construct the observation point to observe the transit of Venus. They build a military fort. It is the first kind of permanent European occupation of any space in the South Pacific, and it is a clearly militarized structure. Mm -hmm. And so there's this very romantic idea of the voyage of discovery, and it's it's very much a surface level 
argument. Mm -hmm. This is something that we see later on in Australia in particular. A lot of the time people talk about like discovering things Mm -hmm. and you see the accounts that are written by the scientists who are going to go and find, you know, the new plants or the new specimens. Mm -hmm. It's very, very clear from the accounts that they give and the justifications that they give that what they're really looking for is cash crops and they'll often pass over something potentially more interesting Mm -hmm. in favour of a potential cash crop. They're also trying to determine how far European uh, settlement can go. Mm -hmm. So if you look at people like uh, Burke and Wills, who are the archetypal bad explorers, they are super underqualified. They have no idea what they're doing. They try and take a dining table and loads of silverware with them. They fire the camel handler. Mm -hmm. The whole thing is just a disaster. And they die because they don't take advice from indigenous people and they're completely underqualified. Like you drop a bunch of Irish people in the middle of the desert, they're going to struggle. Um, And so with Burke and Wills, for example, it's all supposedly about like mapping the central route to Australia and discovering the North Coast yeah. and, you know, proving that there's no inland sea and things like that. Yeah. But if you look at the accounts that they write, overwhelmingly what they're doing is talking about soil quality. Mm. Would this land be appropriate for sheep or crop farming or like is it suitable for arable, whatever. Okay. And and this is something that we see in the States as well and in most other settler colonies where it's an attempt to create a white society mm. elsewhere in the world is that people are always looking for kind of pioneering uh, new plantation land, that sort of thing. And that's really interesting thinking about um, this object like like that mm. account of what we're looking for in Australia against what is constructed in the British Museum Enlightenment space. Because thinking about like when you walk into that gallery first from the central quadrangle, there's lots of stuff about orreries and um, Greek statuary and yes. pots and like medals of famous people at the time who were like great explorers. And we construct this in that Enlightenment gallery space. Mm. We construct this idea of like science for science oh, gotcha. rather than science for industry. Yes, um, and, and the fact is that with the Enlightenment, like the guiding principle behind Enlightenment discovery and this idea of cataloging the world is to create a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's to assign things with a value. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you're you're determining what land has the best value, what plants or specimens have the best value, and also what people have the best value. And where do we think the platypus sits in this value scale? Low value. <laughs> Very low value. Doesn't but fit it's, the categories. It's, it's valuable for curiosity. Okay, cool. And so it has this weird it has this weird space where it's like it's never used as sort of a meat crop. Yeah. It is briefly used as a fur uh thing. Mm-hmm. And so By the 1860s, um, the platypus has been hunted severely and they have to introduce uh, bans on using platypus fur. Because platypuses are really tight, platypodes rather, are very small. And so if you want to make a platypus fur coat, you need need about 30 or 40 minimum. And so they hunt platypuses in order to like use the fur. And so they try and make it an industrial thing, but it's very, very inefficient. Mm -hmm. And so it quickly drops down to being a curiosity. Mm -hmm. It is now the animal emblem of the state of New South Wales. Oh, cool. Um, Which is cute, yeah. But it's like, what exactly? It's not a useful thing. And so it kind of, it's constructed by scientists in a way of trying to find something useful Mm -hmm. in it. Yep. And so, and they don't find anything. So it's relegated to this, enlightenment gallery as yeah. a, as an item of interest rather than an item that could be productive economically useful agriculturally useful in any way yeah absolutely it, yeah and we know i mean we know now that actually uh the platypus and other monotremes are super useful because they uh genetically diverge very very early from mammals okay so other mammals uh st- stop laying their eggs like i'm not 
I do not know anything about science. But as I understand it, yep. originally everything is kind of egg laying and that's reptiles, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we split into reptiles and mammals and reptiles continue to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. Mammals kind of internalize the egg process. So they still have eggs, but they don't kind of lay them and hatch them. Mm -hmm. They keep they incubate them within the body. Mm -hmm. uh, so egg laying mammals are a really early kind of diversion from that because okay. they continue to externalize their eggs. Yep. That is a terrible choice of phrasing. <laughs> but they externalize their eggs <laughs> and the eggs hatch, but then they still kind of incubate the babies within their body. Yeah. So, 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 now, so now they're, they're super useful. Well, and when we say useful, we're interesting from a yes. like biological perspective. Yeah. Okay. So we now maybe moving away from that enlightenment gallery towards like present day understandings of science mm -hmm. we think more about like when we discuss use maybe we're thinking mm -hmm. about how we can uh construct the world yes in a in a way that it isn't reliant only on economic or like agricultural yeah, benefits absolutely okay. and and sometimes there are descriptions of kind of like the platypus moment yeah. which is when these early botanists see something so bizarre and they have a kind of like for a lot of people and a lot of these descriptors, mm. like these early European explorers that are describing the platypus, they kind of have this like confrontation with their faith as well. Yeah. And so for a lot of them, they look at the platypus and they're like, how could this be designed? Yeah. It is so weird. Yeah. But also it's so weird that it can't be anything like how could this naturally occur? Right. So it must have been designed so it's, you know, the um, yeah. like argument about finding the watch in the field. Exactly. Yeah. Is the platypus like who could possibly like how could a platypus naturally occur? Yeah, it must be constructed. It must be constructed. But also, why would you construct a platypus? <laughs> and then it, it gets this name paradox. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that is no longer its biological name, yeah. but it's originally referred to as as the paradox. Okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? When we I mean, when we look at the platypus, what we're seeing is this kind of very weighty history of Europeans trying to make sense of things that are unfamiliar to them. And as part of that, we have to put it in the context of the lack of recognition of Indigenous uh, culture in Australia. It, it forms part of this narrative of the unfamiliar and the dangerous and the strange. And so, you know, it's fascinating to think about, like, imagining the other. And it's quite interesting to do that in the context of this natural history discussion. But we also have to think about the fact that this is something that comes at huge expense for Indigenous people. It is associated with a history of genocide and cultural destruction. There's even the fact that we don't have an Indigenous name for the platypus. So there are different names in different Indigenous languages. And kind of the most commonly used one is uh, Biladrang, which is from the Wiradjuri language, which is like parts of... Um, southern uh, New South Wales and Victoria in Australia as it's understood today. But the fact that we don't give it this Indigenous name speaks to the fact that these Europeans like to take credit for discovering it. Mm -hmm. There are other animals in Australia like the dingo or the kangaroo which are given Indigenous language names. Mm -hmm. But with the platypus, it's treated as so strange and so unfamiliar that there's no kind of history of conversation or engagement with that. And that really does show us a lot about this European understanding of the unfamiliar of the colonial. Yeah, I think also maybe this is interesting to frame the whole gallery in this conversation Absolutely. as well, because uh, whilst it's constructed as looking at the Enlightenment period, mm. that is now a period that is unfamiliar and strange to us as well yeah. from our like contemporary seat and so constructing a space that, like you say, is made up of modern gallery cases, but explores 
how people in the Enlightenment period would have seen the world is quite a retroactive, um, strange and unfamiliar way of trying to categorize their knowledge. Definitely. It's kind of like a nostalgic museology mm. in a way that I find deeply troubling. Um, there are some choices that are made in that gallery that I think uh, kind of speak to a continued refusal to engage with this history and what often happens in that space is that it's presented as this kind of like look we are looking at our history we have self-awareness mm. but it's sort of self-conscious without being self-aware there's no criticism of these early collectors there's no real critical engagement with what they were doing and the consequences and implications of that mm -hmm. it's very much like this is how things used to be yeah. isn't it fun and curious i think you can find a very similar thing in making the modern world at the science gallery yeah. down one side of the gallery they have these old uh, like taxonomies of the world or like previous taxonomies of the world so they use things like the great exhibition format and mm. the royal um the festival of the uh, festival of britain that happens yeah. at the royal yeah, yeah, festival yeah. hall and and then like the the uh catalog of the world system in the 1980s so it looks at like different ways of framing the past uh, but it's again like it's, it's like you say looking back without being critical about how people engaged in those narratives yeah and if, if you come into that as a casual visitor and you don't necessarily have the kind of toolkit to critique it and mm -hmm. sort of confront it on your own mm -hmm. it's very very easy to engage with it quite complacently yep. and to see a space like the enlightenment gallery and just kind of take it at face value yep. without knowing how to engage with the fact that this is actually a very very violent space mm -hmm. and th that's not a narrative that's not a narrative that is in that space no not at all we have very little content on no. the way enlightenment scientists and enlightenment explorers interacted with indigenous people in yeah. that space and so when i when i do my tours at the british museum we actually spend a lot of time in the enlightenment gallery looking at how that story is constructed mm -hmm. and the sort of historical context for that but also the implications of being in a space like that today yeah excellent um this has been really interesting thank alice you. thank you so much for coming in and discussing the platypus and how we construct australia thank you um, so much for having me that's okay um where could people find you uh so if you go to my website it is theexhibitionist.org don't google the exhibitionist no that's a bad you plan. get you get some really sus stuff um <laughs> but if you look up uncomfortable art tours you can find me on facebook i'm on twitter as aa proctor with an e um yeah and do you have anything that you would like to encourage people to come along to i do tours you yeah. can come on a tour with me fantastic uh yes please come around on a tour the british with me. museum around the british museum i do some stuff in the enlightenment galleries we don't actually look at the platypus uh but we talk about banks and why he's a bad scientist <laughs> fantastic okay thank you so much for being here thank you for having me no worries and that's it for this episode of behind the glass cabinet Thanks to Nicolette Chin, my editor and producer. Thanks to Sam Lee, the composer for the track of this podcast. And thank you to the University College of London Department for Culture and the Department for Science and Technology Studies, without whom this podcast would not have been possible. I've been Ellie Armstrong. You can find me online at, at Ellie the Element. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.